Now we're turning this morning to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you'll find the reading on page 983. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, and in the church Bible it's on page 983. Um, I think many of us are conscious of the fact that this could be a very significant year in our church life. If any of you are visitors, uh, we are anticipating that our minister, David Robertson, will be going about as far away from us as possible in the summer to take up a new ministry in the Antipodes in Australia. Uh, It would be interesting to ask this morning for a show of hands of people who are in the room who were in St. Peter's when David became minister in, I think, 1992. And my guess is that uh, there, there are relatively few of us. And so, as a congregation, we've, we've never experienced this kind of transition before. We may have experienced it in other congregations, but we've never experienced it quite here. And we are certainly, I think, in uh, if this turns out to be the Lord's will, uh, we're in for something of a voyage of discovery. And we are praying that David and Annabelle and their family circle will uh, be at rest in the decision they've made and that the fruit of their ministry here in St. Peter's uh, will become more and more evident Uh, You remember how Paul says, I want you to be even more obedient when I'm absent from you than you proved to be when I was with you, and may that be true for us here. And so, we're going to be thinking this morning about these words in Matthew chapter 16 from verse 13 onwards, because they form one of the, the great transition moments in the life of this little community that the Lord Jesus had gathered around Himself. Uh, But let me begin with a little quiz just to waken you up. Uh, We'll begin with an easy question, Uh, no shows of hands, no shouting out, please, Uh, no pride in getting the right answer. How many books are there in the New Testament that we call Gospels? That's a fairly easy one. Second question, in how many of those Gospels do we find the word church? Or for those of you who sneak in your Greek New Testament, the word ecclesia, to be precise. In how many of those Gospels do we find the word church? Question three, in which of the Gospels do we find the word church? Question four, getting a little more difficult, how many times in the Gospels do we find the word church? And question five, which is kind of on a par of difficulty with question four, in what chapters of the Gospels do we find the word church? Now, we can skip most of the questions because 
the, the big answer is this, that there is only one gospel in which the word church appears. There are only three times the word church appears in the gospels, and there are only two chapters in Matthew's gospel in which the word church appears. And yet, when you think about it, Jesus makes clear here in Matthew 16, as we read, that what He came into the world to do was to build a church. So, let's read together from verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? That, of course, is Jesus' exclusive, favored way of describing Himself. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. It's evident, isn't it, that this really is a turning point. This is a moment of new illumination for Simon Peter, and Jesus underlines it. He has made an open confession that Jesus is the promised Messiah and that He is the Son of God. And Jesus underscores for him that He didn't work this out for Himself, but that this is an illumination moment in His life that has come from heaven. And then we're told Jesus now begins to teach them about what will take place in Jerusalem. He has already given hints of that, but now He begins explicitly to teach them that He's going to be crucified, He's going to die, He's going to rise on the third day. And it's within that context of, of this transition moment that in response to Peter's confession here in chapter 16, verse 16, Jesus gives His manifesto statement. In response to Peter, you are Peter, he says, and on this rock I will build my church. 
If you ask why it is that the word church is used so infrequently in the Gospels, I'm pretty sure the answer is hidden in this passage because you remember how Jesus told them once Peter had confessed him to be the Christ, don't tell anybody that I am the Christ. Don't tell anybody that I am the Christ. I think the reason the word church is not used is largely because Jesus understood that they had no idea what church really was any more than they had a clear idea of what it meant for him to be the Christ. Simon Peter makes the second abundantly clear. Jesus tells him what the ministry of the Christ is. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah's vision in Isaiah chapter 53, and Peter takes him aside and gives him a theology lesson. And he does it violently. The language is, is violent. Jesus actually is taken hold of by Peter. Let, uh, take him into the corner. Peter gives Jesus a doing over for telling him what kind of Christ he has come to be. And I assume that if Jesus knew that Peter couldn't begin to grasp what it meant for him to be the Christ, then he couldn't yet begin to understand the shape of this new community, this church that he was going to be building, even in relationship to Simon Peter. So I want us to look at this manifesto of the Lord Jesus and see four things about it if we can. The first is this, that Jesus building the church lies at the very heart of his ministry. He came into the world to seek and to save the lost. But that's not the end of the story. He came to seek and to save the lost to bring them into his sheepfold. And every picture that Jesus uses of what it means to belong to him virtually in all of the Gospels indicates to us that he never calls us as lone rangers. When we see this promise of Jesus, I will build my church, which has a kind of manifesto-like ring to it, when we see this promise fulfilled, as it first of all is really in Acts chapter 2, what we learn is of thousands of people being added to the church. So the, the vision of Jesus is to create this, this entirely new community. And of course, one of the reasons for that is, is because from the very beginning of the Bible, it was, it was the community that God created that Satan sought to destroy, and did so successfully in the very first family, and then kept on doing in God's family over all the years. And we should understand that since what Jesus came to do was to bring restoration to our broken lives. He doesn't do that in us simply as individuals, but in order to build us into a community, in order to restore relationships. Indeed, as you read through the New Testament, I think one of the most interesting things you notice is how little the New Testament tells you about how to be a personal witness, and how much the New Testament anticipates 
that it's this new community that will be the witness, that will be so different. Yes, individually, but particularly corporately together will be so different that it will shine like a light in the world, like a city that is set on a hill. It will, it will not be able to be hidden. And it's interesting, isn't it, how, how often we read the teaching of the New Testament and take it only into our, our own individual lives, as though Jesus was just speaking to individuals when He said, you are the light of the world, or you are a city set on a hill, when He's, he's always speaking in the plural. Perhaps I can put it like this, that, you know, often I think of… of uh, the models of, of group Bible study with which I was brought up, where, where the good leader would always end the Bible study by going round the group and saying, now, what are, what are you going to take home from this? Or what are you going to do as a result of this? But never, what are we going to do? And not recognizing that almost all the you in the New Testament are usians, or for those of you who are Americans, y'alls. They're in the plural, because this is what Jesus has come into the world to do. His program is to create a church, to build a new community. And in a sense, there's something very exciting about that for us in a day when the word community is one of the big words of our time. I mean, one of those years, community will be the word of the year. But then when you analyze the communities, when, you, when the sociologists who have some insight analyze the communities, they, they always come up with the same conclusion. There isn't actually a community there at all. There's no real communing person to person. There's no reestablishing of relationships. Some of those communities do not exist in order to foster relationships, but to attack and destroy other relationships. But here is this new community that the Lord Jesus is building, and there's something very special about it, because it's a community in which He reigns and rules, and it belongs to Him. I always bristle a little when I'm at conferences or uh, assemblies when ministers use a little expression, my church, my church. Maybe our church would be okay. Jesus' church would be best of all, wouldn't it? And when you understand that this is what He's come to do, in a sense, that simple picture helps us to resolve so many issues in the life of our community, our fellowship. But this is the Lord's church. We are part of His manifesto, and He's, he's given us the wisdom in His Word to enable us to live together in the church. At the end of the day, it boils down to the simple words that some of us were probably taught as children. We trust Him and we obey Him 
for there's no other way to be happy church in Jesus than to trust and obey. So, this is the foundation of Jesus' manifesto. Building the church lies at the very heart of His ministry. But I want you also to notice a second thing in these words that is uh, almost as significant as the first. If Jesus is building the church at the heart of His ministry, then I think the second thing we need to notice is this, that He builds His church with people characterized by frailty. Now, many of you will know these words of Jesus, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, have caused great controversy in the history of the Christian church. Actually, they didn't cause much controversy until about the third century, because most people until the third century took these words at their face value. You're Peter, on this rock, i.e., you, Peter, rock, play on words, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. Now, Paul tells us the church is built on the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. So, you shouldn't be at all nervous about Jesus saying to Peter, Peter, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. He's not saying Peter is the cornerstone of the church, but in my own view, he is actually saying, Peter, you are actually the one on whom I'm going to build my church. When people see the church emerging in the world, it's going to emerge through something I do in you and through you. And one of the reasons for thinking that is he immediately goes on to say to Peter in particular, something in chapter 18 he says to all of them. Peter, he says, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. And when you put the keys in the door and unlock the door, then things will begin to happen. And it's noticeable, isn't it, in the, in the New Testament? Every time you read the names, list of the apostles, which is the first name? There's no exception. Peter is the first name. Whenever you see a list of the three, the special three, which of James, Peter, and John is first mentioned. Peter is first mentioned. But even more significant is who is it that stands up on the day of Pentecost? And if I can put it this way, if I've got them in my pocket, takes the keys out of his pocket. And he didn't have as sophisticated a one as this. He opens the kingdom of God and 3,000 people are brought to faith in Jesus Christ. And who, a number of chapters later on, is the person who again, with great difficulty of conscience, reaches into his pocket because he's had a vision, and uh, he pulls out his keys. Actually, he pulled out the same set of keys, and he unlocks the door, and for the first time in all history, Gentiles pour into the kingdom of God. So, Jesus is not appointing Simon Peter to some great special position in the church. Later on, he'll tell all the apostles that they share in this ministry. 
but just in terms of the history of what God is doing. It is actually through Simon Peter that the the church begins to be built from the day of Pentecost onwards. Just as later on, it, it will be through Paul especially that the church will be built among the Gentiles. And those of you who know the history of missions, you'll be able to say, well, the, 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 the church in, 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 in uh, Vatuanu, for example, was, was built by John Payton or other parts of the world. But you see, that's the point. Actually, John Calvin makes a lovely point in his commentary on this passage when he says essentially, now, now look at this and see the difference between what Jesus is going to do and the person through whom he's going to do it. And I think that's the point. The point is that Jesus is saying here, you crumbling rock, and he shows it almost instantaneously in this passage. He's had divine illumination, but he can't make head nor tail of what it means for Jesus to be the Christ. He is resistant to the Lord Jesus. And Jesus is saying, these are the kinds of people that I'm going to build into my church, even into the foundation of the church. I mean, it's such a, such a powerful emphasis for us to grasp that if he doesn't build the church, the church will never survive. But you see, he's saying here not only that he will build the church on on these uh, frail foundations of Peter and the other apostles, but that even the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. Now, why does he do this? Because he loves to do it this way because he, he actually loves the glory to go to God and not to us. That's the point, isn't it? Um, it's like the point Paul makes that the, the treasure in Second Corinthians 4, the treasure is in, in jars of clay, easily broken, so that it's clear it's not the jars of clay that did it, and as Matthew Henry suggests, maybe Paul was thinking about Gideon, Remember the story of Gideon and these 30,000 guys who are going to destroy the Midianites? And remember what God says? 30,000 is far too many. Cut them down. And Gideon ends up with, is it 300? And what are the weapons? They're, they're lights in clay pots, and they, they break open the clay pots, and they speak the word the Lord has told them to speak, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon, and the Midianites are dispersed because he loves to do it that way, to show that the excellency of the power belongs not to us but to him. Think of the number of times in, in the lifetime of those of us who are in mid-years and later, uh, we have heard people say, you know, if only X could be converted, it would be such a great thing for the church. And maybe it would. You must have said, you know, if only a member of the royal family was, was standing clear as a, a, clearly as a follower of Jesus Christ, that'd be a great thing for the country. Well, it would be a great thing for the country. Uh, But God is not dependent on famous people. 
Indeed, he likes apparently not to use famous people. And we know that because there aren't many famous people in our church. And this is such a marvelous thing for us to understand. That's such an encouragement to us. Um, you know, sometimes theological students come out from seminary and they say, you know, the seminary didn't really prepare me for ministry. Well, woe, woe betide the seminary graduate who comes out with his diploma and says, now, now I'm prepared for ministry. And it's, it's that way all the way home. Frail vessels that amazingly the Lord Jesus delights to use. So, building the church is the heart of Jesus' ministry. He builds the church on people who are marked by frailty. But then there's this third important element. He builds the church on enemy-occupied territory. He builds the church on enemy-occupied territory. That's the narrative of the Gospels, isn't it? From, from the beginning, when Jesus has those temptations in the wilderness, what's He doing? He is he's pushing the enemy back. And once He's done that, He begins to reclaim the territory that the evil one had claimed and marred by leading the human race into sin. And so, He, he heals diseases and uh, he has compassion on the needy, and he preaches about the fact that the reign of God has now been established in him, and as a result, the forces of darkness press back. And so, Jesus gives this great promise uh, that, in a way, the greatest challenge to the church lies not in our own frailty because God uses it. The greatest threat to the church lies in the activity of the enemy who resists Jesus taking back the territory for the glory of God. And you'll notice the language that is used here is very strong. I will build my church, verse 18, and the gates of Hades, or in the ESV, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a strong word. Remember how when, when Jesus was on trial, the cries of those who wanted Him crucified prevailed. They shouted louder. They shouted down any voice that said, maybe we should think about this again. And this is, this is how we are in the world. This is how the church is in the world. This is how, this is how our, this is how St. Peter's church is in the world. Um, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood although we do think so much horizontally, don't we? When everything goes wrong, who is to blame? And, and we, we don't think vertically or supernaturally the way Jesus does. And uh, I want to underline for us that this is, this is a promise, but it's also a prophecy. And the first part of the prophecy came true at the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles, didn't it? Through the preaching of Peter, the church amazingly was built. And you remember the next thing that happened? It was that the, the gates of hell began to attack. Um, 
why does Jesus use that kind of odd expression, the gates? What would that have conjured up in the minds of the people who first heard it? I mean, to us, it just conjures up gates, but it, it was, well, you remember the story of Ruth and Boaz? Where does Boaz go to seal the deal in Ruth chapter 4? He goes to the city gates. Remember the wonderful woman in Proverbs 31 who describes the woman you're married to if you're a man? You remember the best thing that's said about her husband? He sits with the elders at the gates. What's he doing at the gates? Well, the gates in that culture were city hall. Um, the gates were that magnificent building in what Bill Bryson called the second most beautiful square in all Europe, in George Square in Glasgow. That massive building, which if you're a Glaswegian, you knew as the city chambers. You might not have known what a chamber was, or you might have got what a chamber was quite wrong, but it was the city chambers. That was, that was the seat of local government. And so Jesus' language portrays a, a, a strategy to destroy the church. And he's saying that strategy will not prevail. And it does seek to prevail. Um, God is infinite, but Satan is not infinite. God is infinitely wise, but Satan only has so many strategies. Remember, amazingly, Paul says, we're not ignorant of what they are. I think that's such an interesting thing. You know, if I'd been there, I would have said, for, for any sake, Paul, tell them, because you may not be ignorant of what they are, but the rest of us feel very ignorant of what they are. But you see them in Acts chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, and you see them again and again in the story of the church as a whole and often in the story of individual congregations. The first strategy is intimidation. In this instance, it was intimidation from religious leaders. And either outside or, alas, sometimes inside, there are intimidators, aren't they? There are, there are individuals who, who press upon what is happening in such a way that everybody feels if we do that, we will be in danger. Our reputation will be marred. We will get hurt. And when that failed, as it did in Acts chapter 4, the second strategy in Acts chapter 5 uh, was uh, individuals who, who sought reputation and position, but who lacked the character to occupy them. And that dreadful story of uh, that couple who sought to deceive the church because they wanted, they wanted position and honor that their hearts didn't deserve. And when that failed, then what was the next tactic? The next tactic was to produce division. And the, the murmurings there were between the, the Hebrew speakers and the Greek speakers in, in those little house churches that was in grave danger of destroying the church. And again and again and again, he uses those tactics. 
And we need to recognize what those tactics are, to, to be sensitive to them, to be defended against them. Because we understand that Jesus is building his church on enemy-occupied territory. And you see it immediately here. I mean, no sooner has Jesus announced what he's doing than Satan is in there. And lo and behold, what is Peter doing? He's seeking to intimidate Jesus so that he doesn't go the way of the cross. And that's the fourth thing to notice, that Jesus, who has building the church at the heart of his ministry, does it through people marked by frailty, does it on enemy-occupied territory, also builds the church on the pattern of his own destiny. You know those old architects, I think, you know, medieval architects, dare I say it, even Episcopalian architects? Remember how they built churches always on the same floor plan? And if you looked at the floor plan from above, you know, sometimes in these great cathedrals, there'll be a camera and show you the floor plan from above. It's always the floor plan of a cross. And any, any biblically literate architect who was doing that in ye ancient days was understanding that what Christ is doing when He builds us together into the church is, in a sense, He's, he's molding us and shaping us into the shape of His own destiny, that it will be through, through difficulties, trials, suffering, opposition, that Jesus would enter glory. And paradoxically, it will be the same way that the church will become fruitful, so that Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 says, you know, the truth of my life is that through union with my Lord Jesus Christ, I so share in His death that death works in me, but the result is that life works in others. This is, this is uh, what Martin Luther called the theology of the cross. And he was speaking against the church that sought what he called the theology of glory. The thing that will really make an impact is that we all look so cool, that we're all so smart, that we all have important positions in society, that we have health, wealth, and happiness. That will really impress the world. But uh, Luther saw that wasn't God's way because it wasn't his way with the Lord Jesus. And so when he builds the church, he builds the church, as it were, on top of the pattern he used in Jesus. So again, as Calvin says in another place, from the beginning, God has so constituted the church that death would be the way to life and the cross would be the way to victory. And we are blessed to live in an age of communication when in our own lifetime we have seen that happen. In these last hundred years, the suffering of the church in Korea and the fruitfulness of the gospel. I remember as a youngster hearing Gladys Aylward speak in the tent hall in Glasgow and tell this shuddering story about the execution of young Chinese Christians. 
some of us knew people who had who had had to leave China where they had been missionaries. I don't imagine for a moment as they trembled at the fragility and the smallness of the church in China, I don't don't think they could have imagined for a moment how Jesus was building His church by molding these dear saints into the shape of the cross to be so overwhelmingly fruitful because when He promises to do it, He does it. And if He gave this promise to, if you'll allow me a Presbyterian to call Him this, if He gave this promise to Saint Peter, then He surely gives that promise to Saint Peter's. May it be true. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You again for the wisdom and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and for the way in which He has taken us such badly marked and marred stones and called us out of darkness into His marvelous light and built us together with one another as living stones into the church which is His new temple. Thank you for the way in which one and another has been used in our lives to rub off our our angularity and our rough edges and our pride and self-sufficiency and stubbornness. We know, Lord, that we are far from being what we have been called to be, but we believe that you have made us what we are together. And we pray that this promise and prophecy of the Lord Jesus will be abundantly fulfilled among us in these days. And we pray this in our Savior's name. Amen.